When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. Don't forget, we're like the piggy bank that's being robbed. And if they're folks that shouldn't be in this country, they're going to be detained. And so, apologize for nothing here. You know who's getting the oil? China. China. I love them. China. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So, President Emmanuel Macron just said to Congress, Personally, if you ask me, I do not share the fascination for new strong powers, the abandonment of freedom, and the illusion of nationalisme. That's nationalism. I can't, I'm giving up the accent. In any case, if he doesn't like strong powers, abandoning freedom, and the illusion of nationalism, David Frum just said on Twitter, David Frum, who's been on the show, you picked a hell of a time to visit the U.S. then. It is so sad. We suck as a country. I hate having to have these European leaders come over and tell us that and make it clear in their sophisticated way that we have such a loser president. So embarrassing. Are we ever going to get our pride back? Today, we're going to be kind of talking about that. My guest is Ian Bremmer. He's going to be talking about his book, Us Versus Them and the Failure of Globalism. Ian Bremmer, of course, is the founder and president of the Eurasia Group. But first, we have our jurisprudence correspondent. That's Mark Joseph Stern. He was at the Supreme Court today to hear the opening arguments around Trump's travel ban 3.0. He is joining me on the line right now. Mark, thank you for being back on Trumpcast. Thanks so much for having me back on. To walk me through each of the travel bans, like each, each iteration. Okay. The so first the one was first... just like, we hate black people and Muslims. <laughs> and the second right. one was we kind of, we still hate them, but we have ways of hiding it a little better. Yes. That's, okay. that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. So the first travel ban was issued a week after Trump took office. This was the order that trapped hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, at airports, led to the deportation of a bunch of people who were literally in mid-flight to the United States uh, when the ban was, uh, was issued. Uh, and that order was very quickly brought, uh, blocked as a rather egregious violation of due process because it just, you know, immediately stripped rights from millions of people, including lawful permanent residents, green card holders, were affected by the first iteration of the ban. So that ban fell pretty quickly, uh, and the Trump administration issued a new ban, which covered the roughly the same countries, a bunch of Muslim-majority countries, prohibited citizens of those countries from entering the United States, but it did not take effect immediately. It actually had a little bit of a delay time. Uh, and the lower courts blocked that ban, but the Supreme Court eventually let it take effect with modification. So the Supreme Court said this cannot apply to anyone who has real relationships uh, with people or entities in the United States. So business people, uh, students, people with family members in the U.S., all those people were allowed to come in. That ban then expired 
and Trump issued the third version, the one we're talking about uh, now, in September, which is indefinite, uh, and it bans individuals from seven countries, most of them, once again, Muslim-majority countries, uh, from entering the United States based on some very, very dubious criteria that appear to have been sort of made up by a mid-level lawyer at DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Nonetheless, it has been vigorously defended by the government. The lower courts have uh, ruled that it is invalid, um, but the Supreme Court heard arguments on it today, and I am sad to say that it does seem like a majority of the Supreme Court appears uh, prepared to uphold this version. Wow. And how do you, uh, well, how do you get that sense? Well, it's pretty clear that the liberal justices are going to vote against it. And so, as usual, this falls along ideological lines. The right-leaning justices, uh, Neil Gorsuch, who is a Trump appointee, Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Samuel Alito, uh, all of them uh, asked a bunch of really, really sharp questions uh, of the attorney who is attacking the ban, Neil Kadial, mm-hmm. who, for the record, I also took in law school. Great professor. Happy to see him up at the lectern. Nice. Um, and the big question was whether Justice Anthony Kennedy was going to break from the right flank and join the liberals and, you know, actually start to question, well, why does this ban exist? What purpose does yeah. it serve? Why should the president be excluding 150 million Muslims from the country on the basis of very dubious criteria that don't seem to make any sense. But instead, we saw Kennedy asking a lot of kind of credulous questions. It was very disappointing. Mm. Uh, He asked questions like, well, why should the courts be second-guessing the government? Why should we evaluate the president's own national security determinations? Uh, And it was sort of revealed through the course of arguments that Kennedy, poor, sweet, uh, octogenarian Anthony Kennedy Mm. doesn't seem to get uh, that this guy in the Oval Office hates Muslims Mm. and talked extensively about implementing a Muslim ban and basically admitted that this executive order is his version of a Muslim ban. Uh, And that was disappointing for those of us who who oppose this this policy um, because Kennedy does uh, fairly often tip his hand during oral arguments. um, And here it just didn't seem like he was buying uh, the idea that the courts should second-guess the president here, uh, even when the president waves his hands around and says there are terrorists trying to attack us. Is um, Let's talk then about the national security justification. Uh, this is two parts. One is, what is even the fig leaf of reasoning beyond um, racism and Islamophobia for these particular seven countries and not seven other countries? And the second part is, what is the precedent for the Supreme Court questioning national security priorities from the executive branch, from the Pentagon, as themselves unconstitutional? Right. So so to your first question, these criteria are very vague and basically revolve around how closely the governments of these countries will work with the government of the United States uh, to screen visa applicants before they come over. Um, but the countries that were selected uh, are, are fairly random and do not seem to have a worse 
screening processes than many other countries in the world, uh, including several that do not have Muslim majorities. And just to give you an example of how weird and random this is, when the third order came out, it included Chad, the country of Chad. Uh, and it was not at all clear why Chad was on the list. Uh, because Chad did seem to comply uh, pretty readily with the U.S. government in screening everyone who wanted to come to America. Uh, and eventually the administration revealed that it had banned every citizen of Chad from coming into the United States because Chad had run out of passport paper, the kind of passport paper that the United States claimed was really, really important um, to have, and uh, was using a backup paper that was not noticeably different, but according to the United States, a real security risk. Mm. Um, And then when Chad finally got a new shipment of the normal passport paper, the U.S. dropped it from the list. What do you think? I mean, that's so, like, wonderfully absurd. And I I don't even, I don't know, you know, you want to say, like, this is Nixonian, Orwellian. I mean, it's every one of those things. Whatever whatever has absurdity and authoritarianism and racism in it, it's that. Um, Yes. But what is... I think Nixonian (laughs) is the right term for it, for sure. And, And what's also Nixonian is this argument that the administration is presenting, which is basically you cannot review our national security determinations. That's uh, more or less what the government is telling the court. And that goes to your second question. I mean, this Supreme Court, including Justice Kennedy himself, um, has second-guessed the president's national security determinations in the past. When the Bush administration um, was locking up people in Guantanamo Bay without any appeal, without any due process, any habeas corpus, the, the Bush administration told the Supreme Court, you don't get to review this because this is our decision. And in fact, Congress even tried to strip the Supreme Court of its ability to hear these Guantanamo cases. And still, the court, with Kennedy as the decisive vote, said, no, we are a able to hear these cases. And in fact, we are going to grant constitutional rights to Guantanamo detainees. So this is not unprecedented for the court to wade in. Uh, And it's, again, disturbing to see that Kennedy, who was really good on this stuff just a decade ago, seems to be kind of retreating. Back to the paper and Chad passports. So is the idea, let's find some majority people of color, majority Muslim populations that we can um, ban and sort of smuggle them in here, and now we need a reason to put on top of it? So I think what was happening with Chad uh, is is kind of like that, but a little different. Um, a big sticking point in this litigation has been the question of whether a government once placed on this list uh, can ever get off of it. You know, once the U.S. has blacklisted your country, can the government do anything to get off that blacklist and, and allow its citizens to continue visiting the United States or even emigrating to the United States. And there, there is a, uh, a rumor that I think has, uh, seems very plausible, at least, that the administration uh, put Chad on this list specifically so that it could then take Chad off the list mm. and tell the Supreme Court what it said today, because, of course, Solicitor General Noel Francisco brought this up today during arguments and said, look, Chad was on the list, but then we took it off we're because so it scrupulous. satisfied our concern. Right. So we're reasonable people willing to work with these governments, even though the whole thing was probably just pretext. So the list, to me, the list just seems so haphazard. I mean, I get that they are, you know, they're going for majority color populations, majority Muslim populations, 
But there are a lot of countries that are not on the list, you know, that could fit in that. And the fact that each of the seven countries has a different, seemingly different justification for being there, it seems like this is entirely symbolic. It's meant to preserve the original statement during the campaign of Trump's that there'd be some kind of Muslim ban and in some tattered way be able to prosecute that racist agenda and call something a victory. Well, I I couldn't put it any better than that. Uh, And just to give you another example, a country that was added to the the ban in its third iteration is North Korea. Uh, North Korea was not present on the list during the first two bans, which were exclusively Muslim-majority countries. Mm -hmm. And it appears that the administration added it to the list on the third go-round solely so that it could point to it and tell courts, look, we're not just banning Muslims, this affects non-Muslims too. The problem with that reasoning is that people from North Korea already can't come to the United States. So this inclusion, the inclusion of North Korea on the list, does absolutely nothing in practical or legal terms, truly just a meaningless inclusion. But it is a fig leaf, or as Justice Sotomayor said today, it is window dressing. Mm. Uh, It creates the impression uh, that this was meant to be anything other than a Muslim ban, when in reality, it's still having that impact on, you know, almost exclusively Muslims. So it's almost as if this administration thinks the courts are stupid, Mm -hmm. thinks the courts are gullible and willing to play along um, with this kind of pretext. And and I'm afraid to say that the Supreme Court, at least, might well end up playing along. Uh, It's just sad to see the third branch, instead of upholding, you know, federal law and the Constitution, say, hey, this is the president. He gets to do whatever he wants when he waves around his hands and says national security, and we're not going to second guess him. That's really not how this is supposed to work. And it's definitely not how it's supposed to work when the president is as erratic and irrational as Donald Trump. Good times. Thanks, Mark, for being here. (laughs) Always a pleasure. We'll be back with more Trumpcast after a quick break. Joining me on the phone to talk about his latest book is Ian Bremmer, the founder and president of the formidable Eurasia Group. His new book out is called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Hey, Ian, welcome back to Trumpcast. Good to be back with you. Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. It doesn't seem like you're on the fence. You think globalism has crashed on the shoals of whatever we are in now. Yeah, not for the globalists, of course. They're doing very well. Or should I say we're doing very well. But, I mean, for the average American and European and increasingly other people, too, uh, the basic tenets of globalism, which is free trade, open borders, the United States out there with you know troops and bases all over the world trying to make the world safe for democracy, and technology is going to solve all of our problems, th- those things, are, none of those things are working for the working and middle classes. And uh, that's a real problem. And that's, of course, why we got Trump. It's why we got Bernie Sanders. It's why we got Brexit. And it's, it's, not, it's not slowing down because this is happening when the world economy is doing really well. Right? So when the world economy starts doing a little less well, we've got problems. When you say it's working well for globalists, but not working so well for other people, I didn't realize, I didn't think of globalism as something you opted into or not. I, in fact, I thought globalism from political science in, you know, in the 90s was a purely descriptive term. 
I thought it meant we have we're going to have interdependent economies and you know increasingly a sense of an interdependent um, environment, and that those things had to be confronted. But it wasn't a, a prescriptive idea. Globalization is not something you get to opt into or opt out of. I mean, that's the idea that goods and services and ideas are moving faster and faster around the world. Globalism is the ideology promoted by the West, really started after World War II when we built up the Europeans and the Japanese who we vanquished in the war um, and built all this international architecture and said that and the idea of free trade and open borders and all the rest all around the world, that, that those are good things and we wish to promote them. So that's what globalism is all about. And that's sort of kind of where you get the, the Davos crowd and you know, sort of the multinationals, the political elites, the mainstream media, the public intellectuals, all of whom have been promoting this ideology and have uh, not paid a lot of attention to the fact that uh, while the world economy has done very well, a lot of people have gotten increasingly left behind and angry. Right. Okay. So, but are the remedies that Sanders and Trump are proposing as seemingly incoherent as they are, or at least what they, what both men seem to be avatars of, do they actually address the problem of declining wages, of no work, of people being replaced by automation. I'm sure the Times had a, we have to, I guess, beware of some of these studies, but a study that recent that showed in the last week that it wasn't actual economic conditions that led people to vote. It was sort of symbolic fears about being displaced, about status anxiety. Um, I'm not sure that there's a conversation about material conditions of existence that is happening in the political sphere. Well, it's very interesting that everyone who ever asks me are these people getting anything from Trump always ask specifically about the economics? Uh-huh. They don't ask about the identity politics. They don't ask about the military side. Um, I mean, in Germany, the average worker feels pretty comfortable about where they are economically. And the German economy is doing quite well right now. The social safety net is much better than that in the United States. Yeah. And yet Merkel got destroyed in the last election, and the alternatives for Deutschland did very, very well. Mm-hmm. And, and almost a majority in, of East German workers, former East German uh, voters, voted for them as well. And that's because Merkel said, I'm going to let a million Syrian refugees in. And the Northern League in Italy, which is in the part of Italy that's doing much better financially than in the five-star movement's uh, dominated South, just crushed Berlusconi's party Mm. because they ran on the back of, we're going to deport 600,000 Libyans that were let in. Now, no one's asking me if Trump's doing a good job at keeping people out and at, you know, sort of building walls or making it feel like he wants to build walls. Look, I may not want to live in a country like that, but so I I posted, I don't know if you know this, but uh, so far this year, 11 Syrian refugees have been allowed into the United States. Yes, I saw that. I saw that. And as opposed to... It was 3,000 last year under Trump, and it was something like 13,000 in Obama's last year. When I posted that, about half of the Americans responding to me basically said, yeah, 11 is too many. Now, Mm. I, I don't think that's because these people are all evil racists. I think it's because they feel like you're telling me you're going to take care of all these people when you're not taking care of me and my family and community, that's not okay. I think that's actually a natural response and a reaction. I think that would be the response of my family 
back in the projects when I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, look, it's very clear that no one has, I mean, neither the, neither the Democrats or the Republicans have done much for these people that feel like they've been left behind over the past decades. The system feels broken. It feels rigged against them. And under the present economy, Trump's a massive giveaway, right? I mean, he gave tax breaks to everyone. The, the budget felt like a Democrat budget. It's incredible deficit spending. And certainly mm-hmm. when interest rates go up and the economy does worse, the working class is going to hit it, going to take it on the teeth. But on these other issues, you could easily argue that Trump is addressing some of the fundamental demands and desires that are being made by these people. And not that I necessarily like that. I really don't. But uh, to, to argue that somehow Trump is the problem, I think really, really, you know, sort of abdicates the, com- the, the complicitness of many in the establishment over the past decades. The thing about calling the desire to keep Syrians out a fundamental desire of the people, it confuses me because I I think I'm in general confused about motivation here. I thought the usual idea of political economy was people had interests in keeping their families solvent and fed and sheltered and that they, you know, would vote on the on their interests that they would vote, you know, for unions or the or for a raised minimum wage or fair wages generally or remedies for income inequality, taxing the rich. But I didn't think that it instantly led to this kind of Byzantine logic that says keep out eleven Syrians, and somehow my job in um, retail, you know, I'll get more hours. So in other words, your argument is you think that people vote purely on the basis of kind of homo economicus, that whatever makes sense economically, that's what they vote for? Well, no, although I do think that we, you know, in the whole, it's the economy, stupid. If we have a a simple, sympathetic set of ideas of what people, you know, are imagined to do or what motivates them to move or do things, it this fundamentalist that you use, you know, you use the word fundamental, is that they vote on material conditions. They make decisions based on material conditions. They go where the jobs are. They want more money. They want more money. They want more comfort. But this conversation is about a much, it seems like much more, well, I guess the the the, the report today said they, people vote on these kind of symbolic issues, you know, so that Trump the by nationalist tr- simply issues. saying... I, mean, I think, that when, I think yeah. that when Trump said, when he went after the black athletes in the NFL in particular, and he said, how dare you we let you make billions of dollars and, and, and you won't even stand for our national anthem. I, I think that was actually very powerful for his base. You've got black athletes, you've got white owners, white coaches, white fans, right? And, and ultimately, the NFL had to really back down to Trump and to the Trump base that felt like finally someone standing up to these anti-patriotic, wealthy blacks in the NFL. I think that was really powerful. I think it's really powerful when Trump says that Mexicans are coming here to rape our women and criminalize. Uh, I think it's really powerful when he says Haitians are coming here with AIDS and Nigerians are never going to go back to their huts when we let them back. I think that we, we, it is really, really a mistake to think that those things don't make any sense and they're just bad and the people that support them are just bad. And so as a consequence, it's not going to lead anywhere. I, I think that you've got a lot of angry people that feel like that people like them have been let go and left behind. And finally, Trump is saying, yeah, no, I'm going to stand up for you. 
and I'm going to demonize the other. And Trump is, Trump is the most us-versus-them president we've ever had. He's really good at painting winners and losers. He's really good at demonizing those that aren't on our team. And I think that's powerful. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you absolutely that it's powerful. I just am surprised. I am surprised that people would vote against their interests or and continue to tolerate, for instance, Trump, he evoked the wall he didn't build the wall yet, then he'll periodically retire the idea of the wall and then re-invoke it and somehow in that process or like tell you he's initiating building it or the money's coming from somewhere else or and in somehow that conversation, solace is drawn in spite of the fact that no changes have been made to jobs. It's just, I I, I find it very kind of rarefied. Like, I'm really glad that you brought this up. Yeah. I think it's a fundamental difference between someone who you think is voting because they believe they have an honest expectation that someone's going to do better for them and someone that is either voting or choosing not to vote because they're so angry that everyone is lying to them. I think this is a protest vote. Like I think when Palestinians throw rocks at the Israeli defense forces or hurl themselves at the Gaza border, as we saw in the past weeks, it's not because they think that doing so is going to make things better. They Mm -hmm. usually run away after they throw the rocks. It's because they are so angry that the Israelis, the Palestinian Authority, the Americans, the UN, the Europeans, the International Court of Justice, that no one cares about them. And so they feel like for one moment, they actually have voice. They're giving voice to who they are. Yeah. And I think voting for Trump is exactly that. It's just like voting for Brexit. People, people couldn't understand in the UK. They said, well, wait a second. Like, we've got all of these facts that we know are true. We've got science on our side. Like, it's obvious it's going to be worse for the British economy if you vote for Brexit. We can prove it to you. And then you have all these other people and say, yeah, you know, you and your fancy facts, I know that you're not going to care about me, that whatever mm-hmm. I do, you're going to get what you want and I'm going to get nothing. So I'm going to vote against this just to show you that I matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like it's almost like uh, someone who's in prison who decides they're going to go on a hunger strike. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't understand why people aren't sympathetic to the fact that we had the most important election of our lifetimes in the United States, and more people didn't bother to vote in the U.S. than voted for Hillary or voted for Trump. And that's because they felt that no matter what they did, the system was rigged against them. And I think a vote for Trump or a vote for Sanders is exactly in that sense. It's not because they thought that Trump was telling them the truth all the time or because Trump was going to build a wall that was really going to make their lives better. But at least Trump was going to alienate and antagonize the mainstream media, was going to drive the establishment politicians on the left and the right crazy. And they see it now every day. We have Trump derangement syndrome. Mm. where you have people that used to be kind of normal and comfortable in the establishment that literally are going insane because they can't believe that this guy is their (laughs) legitimately elected president. So the globalists or the globalist Hillary Clinton did decisively win the popular vote. It does seem like the Congress and possibly even the Senate might flip, not going to call the evil eye down on that. But there's certainly more support for Democrats in, in, in uh, red states than there, there has been. And I mean, some of us are still maybe being served by some of us still hold a candle for liberal democracy. I do, too. Yeah, I still do. Sure. So, uh, but, tell, so but, but, maybe you can maybe you can say something because I, I don't want to keep you too long about um, about Macron's about Emmanuel Macron's speech today because he is holding a candle for liberal democracy and even globalization globalism by that name more or less 
it was widely construed as his speaking back to the us versus them ideology that you see as ascendant right was. and and so i would first of all say that the democrats can take the house it's even conceivable they take the senate and yet the idea that we're suddenly going to do a new deal for people in the U.S. the way we did after the Depression, that we're truly going to build infrastructure, that we're truly going to build, improve our education, get us to the top of the OECD list where we clearly belong as opposed to the bottom. Mm. Um, I just don't believe it. I don't think anyone believes it, right? Because it's not urgent. It doesn't need to happen. Again, this is happening where right now we can spend all this cash. Now, you're absolutely right that Macron is kind of the leading voice for the globalists. Um, Merkel perhaps would have been before she took it on the chin with her last election. Now Mm -hmm. she's kind of a lame duck. But let me just put Macron in context. Number one, Macron almost didn't make the second round because of the communists on the left and the National Front on the right, both of whom outperformed significantly than previous elections in France. That's the first point. Uh, Second point, Macron's big argument in getting in was, I want more Europe. That's completely dead on arrival because the Germans now can't support it. The Italians, obviously, after the election, can't support it. No more Europe. He's not getting a stronger Europe. He wanted more open borders and immigration, enormously unpopular. He had to backtrack. He's actually tightened immigration since he's become president. He certainly wants um, the United States to go back to Paris. Well, Trump's not going to do that. He came in and he said, I want the U.S. to support multilateral institutions. Trump's a unilateralist. Not going to happen, right? Macron said last week that in Europe there's a civil war between the voices of illiberalism and liberal democracy. Well, there is one in the United States, too, and you know what? Trump's on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. Macron didn't say that because he wanted a good trip and he got one, but that's the reality. So, I mean, the one place where Macron has done a lot Mm -hmm. supporting globalism is trying to open the economy more, make more efficiency, start to unwind, you know, some of the money that they clearly can't spend for the long term, improve training, improve technology. It's been very unpopular in France, and uh, his popularity ratings, as a consequence, have shot down to 40%, mm-hmm. even though he was enormously popular when he came in. And Macron is a one guy that's the globalist right now in Europe. The trends everywhere across Europe are against us. The one place where we see as much support for the globalist elites as we had 20, 30 years ago among advanced industrial democracies, as much support for the media as much support for the businesses, as much support for the, for the major political elites, is Japan. Japan, the country where they have no immigrants, it's incredibly homogeneous, and the population is shrinking very quickly mm-hmm. so that even though the economy mm-hmm. is basically not moving, per capita, working class feels like they're doing better. That is really kind of scary. Your new book is called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And you are, of course, the founder and president of the Eurasia Group. Thank you so much for being here, Ian. My pleasure. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. And hey, we don't get to say this enough, but thanks to our Slate Plus listeners. You all really keep us in business and chugging along. If you want to know more about the innumerable benefits of Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. You get all kind of extras and you get to come into the Trumpcast family, La Cosa Nostra. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.